And so you see the solar storms will die down. And so it's quiet time for all you satellites out there. Good night. Phil? Phil! What do you want? It's February 1st, Phil. You know what that means for tomorrow. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Not this year. Come on. It's a cute story. The Jodcast comes out. If it's self-referential in its intro, we'll get 40 more months of astronomy podcasting. No way. No way. Okay, what do you give me? Have Rita, new producer. Hey, Rita. Yes? Can you cover the Moxitani Chester Jodcast Festival with Phil here? Sure thing. Great! Have him back by five for the evening bulletin. Okay, let's get this over with. Roll camera. Twice a month, the eyes of the world turn to this little city in the northwest, to the world's most famous astronomy podcaster, Manxitani Chester Phil. And here's the moment you've all been waiting for. Let's see what the Jodcast has to say. The Jodcast, truly a team creation. With Megan Argo, David Alt, Jen Gupta, Dave Jones, and Ian Morrison. The Jodcast, February 2010 edition. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Jodcast. And today you've got me and Jen. Hello, Jen. Hey, Dave. Hey, everyone. In this edition of the Jodcast, we're bringing you a set of interviews with the astronomers of the Isaac Newton Group of Telescopes in La Palma. And we'll be hearing what you can see in the night sky in February. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, Chandra tells tales of extragalactic star formation, coronal loops imaged around another star, and the coolest brown dwarf yet. Star formation is usually thought of as occurring mainly in the spiral arms of galaxies. In close encounters or collisions between galaxies, the orbits of these stars around the galactic disk can be disrupted, resulting in some stars being thrown out into intergalactic space. But new results from the Chandra X-ray Observatory suggest that, at least in some cases, stars can form outside the normal boundaries of galactic disks. A team, led by Ming Sun at the University of Virginia, used the orbiting Chandra telescope to observe galaxies in a nearby rich cluster, known as Abel 3627. What they found were several enormous tails of X-ray emission, trailing behind galaxies located in the cluster. Tails like these are made up of X-ray emitting gas, which is stripped from a galaxy as it moves through the cluster. One of these galaxies, ESO 137-001, was already known to have one X-ray tail, which extends approximately 260,000 light-years from the galaxy itself. But in these observations, the team found a second tail, apparently associated with the same galaxy. This new tail is of a similar length to the first, but is both fainter and narrower. Both the widths and temperatures of the tails remain surprisingly constant over their entire lengths, and these properties present challenges to current models and simulations of such systems. A similar tail of about half the length was also detected behind ESO 137-002, another similar galaxy in the same cluster. Together with the observations using telescopes operating in other parts of the electromagnetic spectrum, the research also shows the first unambiguous evidence of star formation in the material stripped from a galaxy. Rather than forming in the galactic disk as normal, these stars are forming in the gas stripped from the disk as the galaxy moves through the tenuous gas in the cluster. X-ray tails are rare, 
and double tails are extremely rare. So one question is, why should there be two bright X-ray tails visible in the same cluster? In their paper, published in the Astrophysical Journal, the researchers suggest that, aside from coincidence, the high ambient pressure in this particular cluster could play a role, making the X-ray tails denser and more luminous. If this is the case, the high-pressure environment would also be helping the process of extragalactic star formation. Most of our knowledge of the processes and morphology of the stellar corona come from observing our nearest star, the Sun. Coronal loops are associated with sunspot groups, which affect the streams of charged particles leaving the Sun as the solar wind, so an understanding of the processes in these loops has implications for space weather predictions, which can impact our satellite operations and the safety of astronauts. Studying the same processes in other stars is difficult due to the distances involved and the high resolution required to see any detail. Some of the highest resolution observations possible in astronomy are made using arrays of radio telescopes linked together in a process known as very long baseline interferometry. The more widely separated the telescopes in the array, the higher the resolution of the final images. Using this technique, a team led by William Peterson, a graduate student at the University of Iowa, have detected a large coronal loop on another star. Using a very sensitive array of radio telescopes, which included the 10 antennas of the Very Long Baseline Array in the US, the 100-metre Greenbank Telescope in West Virginia, the Very Large Array in New Mexico, and the 100-metre Effelsberg Telescope in Germany, the astronomers imaged the variable star Algol in Perseus. Algol is an eclipsing binary system, consisting of a large main-sequence B-class star and a cooler K-class subgiant in orbit around each other. The two stars are very close, just 6% of the distance between the Earth and our own Sun, and orbit each other every 2.86 days. The results show a gigantic coronal loop stretching out from the surface of Algol B, the K-class subgiant star, towards its companion Algol A, with the two ends of the loop located at the magnetic poles of the subgiant star. Throughout the orbit, this loop continues to point towards Algol A. The researchers say that Algol B's coronal loop is similar to those seen on the Sun, but is much larger, and the magnetic field at Algol is about 1,000 times more powerful. The size of the coronal loop is larger than predicted by stellar models, and the suggestion is that this is probably due to the tidal effects of the companion star, distorting the loop and stretching it. The results, the first time a coronal loop has been imaged on another star, were published in the journal Nature on January the 14th. An international team, led by astronomers at the University of Hertfordshire, have discovered what may be the coolest substellar body ever found outside our own solar system. Using the United Kingdom Infrared Telescope, or UKIRT, in Hawaii, the astronomers have discovered a type of object known as a brown dwarf, smaller than other stars, but larger than gas giant planets such as Jupiter. The object, known as SDSS 1416 13b, is only visible in infrared light, and is in a wide orbit around a somewhat brighter and warmer brown dwarf known as SDSS 1416 13a. This discovery is the fourth time in three years that Eukert has made a record-breaking discovery of the coolest known brown dwarf, with an estimated temperature not far above 200 degrees Celsius, said the University of Hertfordshire's Dr. Philip Lucas. The light detected from the star is rather unusual. It appears far bluer, at near-infrared wavelengths, than any other brown dwarf detected so far. A near-infrared spectrum, taken with the Japanese Subaru telescope in Hawaii, showed that it belongs to a class of objects known as T-dwarfs, and that it has a lot of methane in its atmosphere, but with peculiar features, including a big gap at certain wavelengths. Using the Spitzer Space Telescope to measure its colour at mid-infrared wavelengths, the researchers found that it is also the reddest known brown dwarf at these wavelengths by some margin. 
A comparison with theoretical models of brown dwarf atmospheres results in a temperature estimate of just 500 Kelvin, or 227 degrees Celsius. In comparison, our own Sun has a surface temperature of approximately 6,000 Kelvin. Both stars are also lacking in heavy elements, an indication that they may be very old, which fits in with the low temperature of the fainter star. Fainter stars use up their fuel much slower, and can last for many billions of years. The research has been accepted for publication in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. And finally, the high-rise instrument on board the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter has been taking spectacular images since the probe entered orbit around the planet in 2006. One particular image, posted to Astronomy Picture of the Day on January the 19th, caused something of a stir. The image shows a series of pinkish-coloured sand dunes, covered with a light frost, located near the North Pole of Mars, taken on the 7th of April 2008 during the Martian spring. As the sun started to melt the carbon dioxide ice, the sand started to shift, cascading down the dunes in dark streaks, which look uncannily like trees in the image taken by the high-rise instrument on board the orbiter. The image covers an area of roughly one square kilometre, and resolves objects as small as 25 centimetres. The colour variations in the ice around the streaks are thought to be caused by dust kicked up as the material shifts and settles on the surface. Thanks for that, Megan. And now on to our interviews. Now, while Dave Jones was in La Palma in January, he caught up with a few of the astronomers of the Isaac Newton Group of Telescopes. And here are those interviews. Hello, I'm here to speak to Pablo Rodriguez of the Isaac Newton Group in La Palma. Hello, Pablo. Hello. So, what would you like to speak to us about today? Uh, I'm, I'm going to speak about my you know, research field. It's basically compact binaries. And we mm. will, you know, okay. be deeper into that uh, in the interview. Okay. So, what do you mean when you say a compact binary? Well, it's not an, I mean, an obvious thing if you think only on our sun, that is a single star. But in the in our, in our galaxy and you know in other galaxies, stars are not you know born alone. Actually, they are born uh, forming part of double systems, triple systems. You know, gravitation is very uh, powerful. So I'm focusing now on binary stars. A binary star is actually a system of two stars orbiting each other or orbiting a common center, of what we call the center of mass. And by compact, I mean one of the, the stars in the system, in the binary system, is a compact star. It's a very, very dense star, that means very heavy, very massive, and very small. So density is very high. And we know that we can have three types of uh, compact star. I mean, by increasing density, white dwarf, neutron stars, and black holes. All of them are the result of uh, the final stages of a life, of the life of, of stars. Um, I'm centered on binary stars, compact binaries, with white dwarfs as uh, primary or more massive stars. So that would be the, the least extreme of the three types. Yes, that's right. Okay, yeah. so what yeah. makes these compact binaries with white dwarfs so interesting? There is something like 50% of the binary systems in, the, in our galaxy, in, in our galaxies, 
will interact. What's in, what kind of interaction? I mean, there are, some of them are so close to each other. I mean, the two stars of the binary are so close that gravity, the gravity pull, can uh, strip some mass from uh, one of the components. So, in the case of uh, compact binaries with the white dwarf as a primary uh, component, the gravitational pull of the white dwarf can take some mass off the companion star. And that mass accretes on the white dwarf. That, that's a process called accretion. And it's so interesting because accretion is the process in the universe that yields the most energy per unit mass, I mean per gram of, of mass. So that's a very interesting and very powerful uh, energy production mm. process. Okay, so, so what techniques do you use to, to study these close compact binaries? Well, as all the you know, problems or in astrophysics or astronomy, uh, the main thing is that these guys are very, very far away. Cataclysmic variables, that is what we call the uh, you know, binaries with a white dwarf and a normal, let's say normal, a star like our sun, of a bit less massive. As I said, they are far away and they're very close. You know, all, the, both components are very close to each other. Even the biggest telescopes, we cannot resolve both the stars. Mm -hmm. So when we point the telescope to one of those uh, systems, binary systems, we only see a point of light. And we have to figure out what's going on there with only a point of light. So basically we uh, search for variability. So that's how the light from the whole system varies. Because there are some processes inside that we believe actually they produce uh, non-variability. And most of the time, rapid variability, like the rotation, fast rotation of the white dwarf, that can be of the order of 10 minutes or 15 minutes. So that's, that's variability in brightness. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, there is also variability related to the orbit, to the orbit motion of the, of the stars, uh, that can give you the orbital period of the system. And uh, that's, a, that's a main uh, number, you know, before going deeper into the into the uh, the system, and uh, there is also spectroscopy. We can divide the light coming from the uh, from the system in all the colors, like you know, like a rainbow, and uh, studying the different emission lines or absorption lines in the system, we can figure out what. You know, what's the composition of the stars, or what are the velocities, you know, the orbital velocities involved, the orbital periods as well, and uh, get deeper on the accretion process itself, the presence of magnetic fields in the white dwarf, because, you know, we know that many of them are magnetic, and so on. So, when you say compact binaries, how compact are we talking? How close together are these things? What sort of periods, orbital periods, do these things have? They're really, really close. So, in cataclysmic variables, we find 
from you know the order of one day. Most of them are between three to five hours. So you know, on a flight from the Canaries to the UK, one of these guys make a, you know, a whole orbit, down to 70-80 minutes. So that's fast. Mm-hmm. If you put one of the one cataclysmic variable, you know, after each other from the from the uh, from the Earth to the Sun, you can accommodate there a thousand or more. So that can give a, you know an idea of how compact. I mean, but compact, I, I mean the the, uh, the accreting star. Mm-hmm. But they are also compact in terms of... Uh, Being close together. Of, yeah, size. Yeah. Okay, so in these systems, they're so close together that one star is tearing matter away from the other. Is that a continual process, or do you see that varying with time? That's a good question. Actually not. Uh, most of the time, they are active. I mean, you know, gravi- gravitation is so powerful that, you know, the white dwarf is stripping the companion continuously. But uh, we know that there's some states, I mean, at some point, accretion can stop or at least be at the level, at a very, very low level. That's what we call low states. They are very, very interesting and you know, a CV in the low state can give a lot of information. Why? Because the way matter goes from the uh, companion star to the white dwarf is not, I mean, a straight way. You know, keep in mind that these guys are orbiting, so you have some inertia, or, you know, what we call uh, angular momentum. And the, the matter goes from the companion to the white dwarf through an accretion disk. So there is a disk of material orbiting the white dwarf, right? And the disk is being continuously fed by the companion or donor star. And the brightness of that disk, because accretion is so powerful, is very, very, very high. So even with spectra, with spectroscopy, we cannot discern, you know, we cannot see the spectra of both the star separately, because the the brightness of the accretion disk veils everything. But luckily enough, during these low states, that where the you know the brightness of the whole system can drop by a hundred, you know, of a hundred or thousand, then the accretion disk goes away, because the material is not. Uh, shed to the white dwarf anymore, or the creation disk. So we, we are pioneering these observations of very uh, of low states, but the problem is that in the low states these guys are very faint. So you need very big telescopes to study both stars, and we have managed to do that here at the ING and at the Astrophysics Institute of the in Tenerife using. Uh, you know, the biggest telescopes in the world, like the Gemini, the very large telescope in Chile, and probably the uh, Grand Telescope of Canaries, the 10.4 meter telescope in, in La Palma. So how long do these low accretion states last? Is it a very short time, so you have to be very quick with your observations, or can they last? We have seen from one month to a couple of years. But I think most important, okay, the duration is important, I think most important is the time between low states. 
because our observations are beginning to show that the low states are probably linked to stellar activity in the secondary star, in the donor star, like the stellar activity we, have, we see in the sun, with, you know, magnetic field, prominences, spots. So it's very interesting because we can probe magnetic activity and magnetic cycles. So studying uh, that kind of cycles uh, in other, you know, stars are more extreme stars because, because the rotation of the donor star in cataclysmic variables is much faster than the rotation of the sun you know, around mm -hmm. its axis. So we can have extreme manifestations of, uh, of that kind of you know, spots or prominences and you know, stellar winds and everything. So we are now understanding that that can uh, be related, you know, low states can be related to uh, star cycles, you know, magnetic cycles in, in the stars. So that's very, very, very interesting, but very difficult to observe because the need of uh, large telescopes. So you work here at the Isaac Newton Group on La Palma. In fact, you're the, you're the INT manager, the manager of the 2.5 meter telescope yeah, here. That's right. Have you used the, the telescopes of the ING to do these, these observations? Can they play an important role in these observations? Yes, actually, um, they are pretty important. We do the, let's say, the faint stuff with larger telescopes, like the VLT in Chile, Gemini North in Hawaii. But you need to know when one of these cataclysmic variables fall in another state. And for that, we use photometric, I mean, brightness, brightness monitoring from telescopes, you know, amateur telescopes from you know, 20 centimeter, 15 centimeter. So there is a group of amateurs in mainland Spain that are monitoring a number of 50 of these systems. So they send an alarm when one of the systems is, you know, falling down. The brightness of one of the systems falls down. So from that, we have to check if that's true with, you know, a bigger telescope and then take one spectrum to see if we can see both, you know, the spectra of both the stars, the white dwarf and the donor star. If we say, if we see that, and we see that with the WGT, William Herschel Telescope on La Palma, or the Isaac Newton Telescope, we trigger our guaranteed programs that called Target of Opportunity program in, uh, at the VLT in Chile, if you know the star is observable from, from Chile, or the Gemini North. So it's a you know, chain of uh, information from 15 centimeter telescope to eight mm -hmm. on something. Uh, meter telescope and actually last no this January on the 4th we took uh, you know we monitored the brightness of one of the guys in the lower state called in the constellation Origa and we got very very interesting results and new results so that can give you an idea of you know the uh, the utility of any kind of telescope I mean optical telescope and if the thing you know goes I mean the low state last a lot, you know, longer, so we can uh, have access or send proposals to X-ray telescopes. Or we are thinking about involving the Hubble Space Telescope when it's because it, it's almost uh, going back to operation again. So you mentioned X-ray telescopes. Yeah. What extra information do you get by looking at a 
at a cataclysmic variable in the X-ray rather than in the optical. What extra uh, information do you get? That that has uh, to do with magnetic fields in the in the white dwarf. When when the material comes from the donor star, it can not only be transported to transfer to the white dwarf surface through an accretion disk. If the in the extreme case, if the magnetic field of the white dwarf is strong enough, the magnetic pressure doesn't allow a disk to to be created. So the the material goes straight, you know, connects to the magnetic field lines. Mm -hmm. We can think about aurora in in the Earth, where you know material from the Sun connects to the uh, Flo flows along. Yeah, flows along the lines of the Earth magnetic field, and then you see all the, that that uh, kind of light, uh, very beautiful aurora. It's that is happening in the uh, in that kind of CV, but in a you know high, very very how can I say that strong magnetic field. Yeah, and there's stronger magnetic field. And uh, very huge kind of aurora, and, and the material. Okay, in summary, material from the donor star connects to the magnetic field lines and falls supersonically to the magnetic poles of the white dwarf. Imagine material falling down and then breaking completely in the surface of the mm -hmm. white dwarf. As it crashes into the surface. Crashes into the surface. So that creates a temperature that is really, really high. And the you know, all that material cools down by the emission of X-rays because of the high temperature. So uh, observing cataclysmic variables and other compact binaries with, for example, neutron stars, can give you information of the uh, cooling mechanisms there, the spin period of the compact star like white dwarf or neutron star. And nobody has never pointed an X-ray telescope, as far as I know, when the CV, when the cataclysmic virus is in the low state. So there is no accretion. But we are now seeing that maybe there are you know, accretion blobs, I mean intermittent accretion. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's worth pointing one of those guys. So, so by intermittent accretion you mean instead of a, a steady, continuous, a steady yeah, stream. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's like the donor star and the whole system because of the sort of like cycle. It's trying to. I mean, I, I I like saying you know the system is fighting for accretion. So it's trying to get to the normal state that is like the accretion mm -hmm. state. So we we pointed the uh, XT satellite to one of the. Uh, cataclysmic variables in the low state, but we couldn't see much because accretion wasn't on at, mm -hmm. that, at that time. So, okay, next time maybe we are lucky. So, as as the INT manager, would you be able to tell us a little bit more about how the INT is run, how the INT works, and how visiting astronomers get time on the INT? Sure. The telescopes of the ING. Uh, run well, the ISAP Newton group of telescope, but there are three countries involved in the operation and in the funding of the telescopes, namely the UK, Spain, and the Netherlands. So every six months, there is an announcement, announcement of opportunity, so researchers from the three communities, the three countries, can send proposals. So basically, they think 
of an interesting project, and that is you know, written down into words, where they uh, explain why that project is interesting, how they are going to do it, in which telescope, and with, you know, with the instrument, I mean, CCDs or spectrographs or polarimeters, everything. And that goes to a, through a peer review process. I mean, there are panels in Spain, in the UK and in the Netherlands of senior astronomers that, you know, evaluate those proposals. The ones that get time, so are transferred to us, and then we do a scheduling of the proposal in, in both telescopes. And then visiting astronomers, I mean, astronomers can visit our telescopes and carry out the observations themselves. But most of the time, astronomers are new to, the, to our telescopes, our, our instruments, so we have to uh, have what we call support astronomers who introduce the telescopes and all the systems to the visiting astronomers so they can be comfortable observing. If they have a week of observations, we do a, a very, very detailed introduction to the telescope in the first, during the first night, and uh, then they can go solo uh, the rest of the, of the observing run. And at the MT, we have a program of student support astronomers. So we have four students, and they take care of the introductions and everything, and they also learn how to operate a telescope, the different kind of instrumentation we can you know, we can find on telescope spectrographs, uh, direct imaging, polarimetry, uh, adaptive optics, everything. Because the, the support uh, students, support, student support astronomers, also are exposed to the instrumentation of our biggest telescope, the William Herschel telescope of 4.2 meter. It's a very convenient and interesting program because we, we give a service to the astronomical community and the students get experience while interacting with senior astronomers that uh, who come to the telescope to to perform the observation. So it's I, I very I, I much like the that kind of uh, program and I hope to get the funding and green light to to carry on with that in the future. Do these student support astronomers come from La Palma or were they already working here before they became student support astronomers? Actually they they come from you know any country. You know the the, the, the call for proposals for students is you know widely worldwide <laughs> open. So there's a international call, and actually, currently we have actually four of them from the from the UK. But we have had Spanish, uh, Greek students. Uh, you know, from you know, you only want to learn. You know, be keen to learn a lot, spend you know some nights at the, at the mountain, and be happy. And that's it. You said some nights at the mountain. Presumably, they don't spend all of their time on the mountain. No, no, no. Most of the time, they spend at sea level, mm -hmm. where they do, you know, support astronomer duties, tasks like you know, revising manuals, the telescope, and they are also involved in a research program with senior astronomers at the ING. So actually, I, I'm supervising the work of two of them. Uh, 
this year. But one of them is working with me on cataclysmic variables in the, in the lowest state. So, you know, apart from their PhD thesis being supervised by, you know, another astronomer in the UK or in the Netherlands or in Spain, they learn how to operate telescopes, all the, you know, they master all the uh, techniques of, of the observing techniques. And in addition, on top of that, they can be involved in a research uh, program with one of the local uh, astronomers at the ING. So this is very, very attractive. Mm -hmm. That sounds excellent. And I, I very much enjoyed my year when I did that here. Yeah, you were one of them. <laughs> so I think all that's left to say is thank you very much for speaking to us and the very best of luck with everything at the ING and with your work on cataclysmic variables. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Okay, so I'm here for the Jobcast with Dr. Miguel Santander Garcia from uh, the Isaac Newton Group in La Palma. Hello. Hi. And we're going to talk to you a little bit about your research. So can you tell us first what kind of research you work in? I'm mainly working on planetary nebulae. Okay, so what's, uh, what's a planetary nebula? Well, um, to answer that, first of all, we have to clarify something, just in case anyone is wondering. A planetary nebula has absolutely nothing to do with planets. Okay. The name comes from the fact that uh, when Herschel first observed these objects uh, back in the 18th uh, century, it appeared they appeared like round, uh, fuzzy nebula mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. resembling planets. Uh -huh. So uh, he called them planetary nebula. But nowadays we know that they have nothing to do with planets at all. But the name still has some inertia, and we still use it. Now, a planetary nebula is the latest stage of uh, life of a low-mass or intermediate-mass star, up to eight times the mass of the Sun. Okay. Beyond that, the stars explode as supernovae. But uh, low- and intermediate-mass stars end their lives by slowly ejecting their envelopes until... The only thing that remains at their cores is uh, a hot, inert, white dwarf. Mm. Mm. So what, what do you mean by envelope? By envelope, I mean the external uh, shells of the star. A star has a core mm. and an envelope, which might uh, vary in, in, in depth. So what's, what's the difference between the core and the envelope? What, what separates the core of a star from, from the envelope? Well, a star is basically a factory in which elements are combined, uh, nuclear fusion, into uh, heavier elements. Mm -hmm. And then the heavier elements are denser, weight more, and they then slowly go inwards to the heavier core of the star. Okay, mm -hmm. so the core is made up of heavier elements, mm -hmm. That's while it. The, the outer envelope it's is made, made up of lighter elements. Mm -hmm. Like hydrogen, mainly, uh, some helium. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then, at the end of its life, the star slowly blows off that envelope, mainly hydrogen and helium and okay. some lighter elements. And then, when all we have at the core is the heaviest elements, uh, the temperature on the surface of the of that core, which we call white dwarf, is enough to light up to ionize the the whole envelope, so we can see it in the sky. And that's a planetary nebula. And that's a planetary nebula.
what do you work on inside Planetary Nebulae? What's the, what's the main problem or the main question that you're trying to answer? Well, the main question in Planetary Nebula is that when we look at Planetary Nebula uh, and we know like 3,000 Planetary Nebulae in our galaxy, many of them are uh, round, but also many of them have different shapes. Some of them are ellipsoidal, and some of them show large degree of collimation in the outflows, which are expanding into space, and some of them are very extremely bipolar, like some butterfly-like. And the main question is to know, to understand how a star, which is mainly a sphere of material, it's mainly round, or almost round, uh, when it blows off uh, its envelope, it ends up with a completely different shape than a round nebula. Now, the, some hypotheses for that involve uh, magnetic fields of the star guiding the, the, the material as it flows out. Another very good hypothesis that it's, uh, it's currently being uh, researched is that instead of one star at the core, we have two stars. We have a binary system, a closed binary system, which is interacting. So the material tends to be ejected preferentially along the polar uh, axis of the orbit, of the orbital plane of the, of the binary okay, system. So if the, so if the binary orbits in a, in a plane, like on a piece of paper, the mm-hmm. two stars are both on a piece of paper, the, the nebula expands away from the piece of paper, perpendicular to the piece of paper, at mm-hmm. 90 degrees to the piece of paper. So why, if you have a, a binary system, why, why would that mean that the matter is able to move away from the plane of the binary, but not in the plane of the binary? What causes that? Well, if the, if the system, the binary system, is a closed binary, then the, both stars are interacting. And that means, basically, that one of the stars is donating material to the other star, which gets into the, some onto its surface or into some disk around it. But if the stars are very close, it might happen that the star, which is receiving the material, has not enough time to process it. So it, it's getting material from the other star too quickly. So then it cannot process it. And then the material starts to accumulate and we end up with both stars inside an envelope of gas. And then if we add the interactions that we have because of the of the stars going in, into an orbit, then we'll end up with some sort of, of belt of donut around the, the orbit. And then later on, when the material for the nebula is ejected, it will have no problem to, to move out of the orbital plane where the donut is and it will have some problems going into the denser uh, donut mm-hmm. it's around the belt sure so it's it's basically as though it was an expanding sphere like we would expect but this donut mm-hmm. acts like a waist yes, around right. this expanding sphere mm-hmm. and allows it to move much freer in in the polar directions away from the perpendicular to the plane of the binary but slows it down and traps it in the plane of the binary. That's it. 
so now we have this this hypothesis to test mm -hmm. okay. how mm -hmm. can you test this binary hypothesis next step is finding the binaries because right now we we haven't uh, found uh, many of them in fact we only know just that the, a bunch of systems are in fact binaries because these objects planetary nebula and their central stars are so uh, far away that we can't tell uh, one star if, the, if they are two star there are two stars there close binary we can't solve especially solve the system so we can tell one star apart from the other so we need to invent and develop techniques to observe the the core and tell that there are in fact two stars there what we are doing is to find new binaries to test this hypothesis to see if most what we think is that most bipolar nebulae come from a binary from a closed binary system mm -hmm. so now we are f uh, trying to find new new binaries by one technique uh, which is uh, called photometric uh, monitoring so what does what does photometric monitoring mean it means that as the stars go in their in their orbits if there's a binary system if, well if there's a single star then the brightness will be more or less the same every, every time so we will not notice any variation in brightness but if there are two stars and imagine they are if the orbital plane is in the line of sight then one star might eclipse the other as they go round and then in that moment we will see a difference in a variation in brightness because so, one star is blocking the light yes because because one star is brighter than the other so when when the brighter star goes before the the dimmer star then we will see some decrease in brightness okay so so to do that you have to take lots of images of a of a a star and then check how bright the star is on yes on each image if we see some variation uh, time variation of the brightness that might tell us that the, the system is binary it's not necessary that it's the, the orbital plane is in the line of sight but it could also be some there could be some tilting so the variations can be due to the reflection of the light of one star onto the surface of the other star we can also tell the difference. So, as well as finding new binaries at the center of planetary nebulae, what else can be done and is being done to investigate the effect of, of, a, of a binary star on the, the formation of a planetary nebula? Mm -hmm. that, well, that, that's important because it's not only a matter of finding binary stars inside planetary nebulae, because what we want to test if, is that the, that the binary the binary uh, system is the responsible for the shaping for the bipolar shaping of the of, of this nebulae so it could be just that it's purely coincidental that the star is a binary star in fact but if the if the theory uh, well according to the theory the binary star ejects the nebula preferentially away from the orbital plane so the waist of the nebula should uh, be in the same plane mm, the equator of the nebula should be in the same plane as the orbital plane mm. okay then uh, 
when we find a binary through this photometric monitoring, then there are uh, another number of, of methods, mm, instrumental methods, to uh, derive the parameters of, of, the, of its orbit. And that means that we can know the inclination of the orbital plane, among other things. And then if we know the, orin the inclination means that we can know how the orb that orbit is oriented in the plane of the sky. By looking at the nebula, looking at the image of uh, an image of the nebula and combining it with, with spectra uh, of the nebula, we can also develop a three-dimensional model of the, the structure and velocity pattern of the nebula, which tell us uh, about the age and other other parameters, velocities and, and such, as well as the orientation of the nebula in the plane of the sky. So what we are testing is when we find a new binary, we develop a model for that nebula and we test if the orientation of the nebula is the same as the orientation of the orbital plane. If they are the same, they are similar, then that tells us that the binary system is probably responsible for the shaping of the of the nebula. So how close do the binary stars at the centre of the nebula need to be to have an effect? Well, we're, we're not completely sure about how how far away they can be. How close there are binaries who orbit has a period of just a couple of hours. So every two hours the, there's one orbit and that might probably be it more than enough to shape the, the nebula. But on the other hand, there are systems of stars which are much further away, which periods of several hundred years, which are still interacting, they are called symbiotic, uh, symbiotic binaries, and which also produce, some of them produce uh, nebulae, which are very similar to the planetary nebulae. And we think that that binary interaction has, might probably play a role in the shaping of of this nebula. So we are not completely sure of how what what's the range needed, the distance range or the period range needed for a nebula to to be shaped. We are now starting to find new binaries, so maybe it's a little bit early for be you know, being sure about about that. You also mentioned that there are there are very few known binaries just to get an idea if the, as you said earlier, there are about 3,000 known planetary nebula in the galaxy. How many of those, vaguely, do we know that are uh, that contain a binary star? Well, no more than a few tens of uh, of systems. So that's a very, is. very small fraction. Of yeah, it might, might look disappointing, but in fact, it's it's hard to to find them out. But well, re recently we. We were involved in a campaign, observational campaign, the Mercator Telescope here in La Palma, uh, to find the new binaries in planetary nebulae, and we, well, we were quite successful. Out of uh, 20, 20 objects, we clearly, without any doubt, found out that at least ten are binary, close binary stars. And close binaries means very close binaries. Yes, because you said really close binaries. Binaries with periods of hundreds of years, which would be completely undetectable no, to no. us, can have an effect. So the binaries that you detected 
at the Mercato were very close findings. In fact, one of the problems for us not detecting more binaries might be that their instrumentation only allows us to, to detect uh, close binaries because the, the further away they are, the slower their, um, their changes in brightness and their changes in velocity around the orbits are so the more difficult to, to detect. So what we are finding when I mean close binaries, I mean periods from a from couple of hours to one to few days. Yes. More than that it's very, very difficult to to find. Okay, so so thank you very much Miguel and the best of luck okay. with your work here at the ING. Thanks for that, Dave. And now on to all of the bits of news that weren't in the news. Jen, what you've got for us? Well, first up, I've got quite an interesting news story about solar power in space. Mm-hmm. So EADS Astrium are Europe's biggest space company, and they're looking for people to work with them to fly a demonstration solar power mission in orbit. So this is the idea that you take your solar panels into space, you don't have all the atmosphere there to take away anything from the sun's power. And then somehow, I think by infrared, you transmit this power back to Earth. Ah, so when it says um, they're looking for people to do it, this is not members of the public then? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> they're looking for people to work with them to develop this technology. Ah, so it'll be going up on rockets, planes? I assume it'll be, it, it's going to be a satellite like orbiting the Earth, so it'll be launched by rocket, I assume. Okay, dog. But it's, it's something that's been talked about for a very long time, but I think they're finally getting to the stage where they can seriously sit down and, and plan it out. Um, something else that's been around for a long time that we've talked about is Stellarium, uh, which is a wonderful piece of kit for looking at the night sky and um, discovering objects in space. And Universe Today has put together a guide of some of those objects. So if you've ever clicked on some of the stars in Stellarium and found that they're actually Messier objects, then they have put together this guide, and we'll put the link in the show notes where you can find out a lot more about each one of these. You can find out where it is, its history, and why it's included in the catalogue and everything like that. So that's a, a very useful thing from Universe Today. Something else that uh, we've been using for quite a while is Twitter. A lot of you are, uh, are followers of us on Twitter, and the International Space Station now has internet access. So well, limited internet access. Limited internet access, yes. But there, we have now had the first tweet from space, which I think is very, very exciting. Yeah, so, I mean, the NASA astronauts have had Twitter for quite a while, but what happened before was that uh, the astronauts on the International Space Station sent the tweets down to Houston, I think, and then someone there actually posted them onto the Twitter accounts. They never had the direct access to Twitter before up there. Mm. But now it sounds as if they're VNCing down to the ground and then... Something (laughs) like that. Yeah, I doubt the web has actually got a, all the way up to uh, the space station. <laughs> You're a very strong router to get yes. a wireless signal. <laughs> well, um, talking of uh, stations up in space, Spirit is now a stationary station. NASA has decided that because it's been they've been trying to move it since they've been trying to move it for quite a while. And mm. what's happened now is that they're moving into the Martian winter. So because um, Spirit's powered by solar panels, it's not going to be able to get as much power. So I think it's kind of, now's the time to give up, make preparations so that it can survive the Martian winter and still be taking data. Okay, that's a very good idea. I mean, it is sad that it's not going to be roving around anymore, but it's stuck in, as we said before, it's stuck in a very interesting place. 
Is it possible that they might be able to move it come I, the I, Martian I summer? I don't think so. I think right. at least two wheels have given up now. So okay. It's looking unlikely. But at least it can still collect data for us. Yes, so it's definitely uh, not the death of Spirit. That's good. So Spirit now stuck on Mars in a very interesting place. And Mars is currently one of the most interesting things you can see in the night sky. Uh, I've been presenting in the planetarium for the last few weeks, so I know I've, I've been seeing it. Um, and tell us more about what to see in the night sky during February. Here's Ian Morrison. Well, the night sky for February 2010. Well, as night falls, the constellations of Pegasus and Andromeda are setting towards the west. High in the south, you'll see the wonderful constellation of Orion. The three stars of its belt are great pointers. Down to the left, you have the very bright star Sirius in Canis Major. Up to the right, you point towards the constellation of Taurus the Bull with the Hyades and Pleiades clusters. High overhead, above Orion, is the constellation of Auriga, with the bright star Capella. The Milky Way runs through that. There's some very nice open clusters you can see with binoculars or a small telescope. Up to the left of Orion are the twins, Gemini, a nice cluster down towards the upper twins' feet. Then coming over towards the eastern sky, you've got Procyon in Canis Minor, and then a very faint area, which is the constellation of Cancer, but in there at the moment is in fact the planet Mars. And then rising as the evening goes on towards the east is the constellation of Leo. Well, what about the, the planets this month? Not a bad month, in fact. Jupiter is now beginning to set very soon after sunset. You can still see it in the southwest as darkness falls at a magnitude of about minus two, the angular size is still about 33 or so arc seconds, so if the conditions are good, a telescope will show you detail. But of course, it's very low above the horizon, not too easy to see. We'll come back to Jupiter in a highlight later on. Now, in contrast, as Jupiter is sort of going out of our view, Saturn is becoming better. It rises by about 9 p.m. in the middle of the month, and it goes due south about 2.30, so you can see it late in the evening. The angular size of the disk is 19 arc seconds, that stays pretty constant. The rings are actually about 5 degrees in tilt angle, so they're still pretty thin, and perhaps surprisingly, they are actually getting narrower again, and by the end of the month they'll be about 4 degrees. It's not until the end of March that they begin to open out. That's something to look out for, but of course, as a result, Saturn is not as bright as it often is. Now, Venus has been behind the Sun. It was at superior conjunction, that means it's precisely behind the Sun, on January the 11th. It's now beginning to climb up into the evening sky, and we'll come back to that when we talk about a conjunction of Venus and Jupiter. Mercury had a morning apparition last month, and it's now moving back towards the sun. But you might just have a chance of seeing it, particularly on the morning of the 12th, when it is just to the lower right of a very thin crescent moon, just a few degrees above the horizon. You'll need to have a very good eastern horizon, or southeastern horizon, to see it, though. And, of course, Mars has been at its best last month, and still this month it's very good. 
Opposition was towards the end of January. It's well up in the south by about 10 o'clock in the evening. And uh, it's now, in fact, moving westwards through Cancer. And that continues until March the 8th, when it then, in fact, turns round and comes back through Cancer and into Leo. That'll be the end of its so-called retrograde motion. A bit more about Mars later on. So what about the highlights of the month? Well, as I briefly mentioned, on the evenings between about the 14th and 17th of February, Venus and Jupiter, the two brightest planets, can be seen together just after sunset. They're closest, in fact, on the 16th of February, uh, but then they're only about four degrees above the horizon, and there's a lovely crescent moon hanging in the sky above. That should be a lovely sight. You need to get somewhere where you have a very good low, basically southwestern horizon, so you can see low towards the horizon. Those few days, well worth having a look out for Jupiter and Venus. Well, Mars, as I've said, it's still a very good month to observe it. Opposition was on Jan the 29th, and so now it's becoming higher in the sky in the evening. It's not as big as it sometimes is. Because Mars has an elliptical orbit, when we are at closest approach, sometimes Mars is a good bit nearer than it is now. Um, the angular size has been about 14 arc seconds, but on a really good apparition, and there was one a few years ago when Mars was at its closest for 60,000 years, it's up to about 25 arc seconds. Gradually, over the next uh, 10 years, it'll start getting a bit bigger again when it's closest. But you can at least see it, and a good thing this time is it's actually nice and high in the sky. It gets up to about 60 degrees, so even though the image is small, you haven't got quite so much of the atmosphere to degrade it if you look at it with a small telescope. The North Pole is pointing towards us. You should see the North Polar Cap quite easily. Now, occasionally, we can see some of the brighter asteroids. Uh, the second largest asteroid, or second most massive, um, is Vesta, diameter of 530 kilometers. It's actually, though, the brightest and has a magnitude of plus 6.1, which means you could just see it with your unaided eye under perfect conditions. Now, during the month, it actually passes very close to the bright star Algeba, which is up in Leo the Lion. It's the star at the base of the main, really. And on the 16th of the month, it actually passes between Algeba and the star 40 Le Leonis, and it should therefore be very easy to pick out. I have put a little plot on the night sky page of the Jodrell Bank website, just put night sky into Google, it'll come up, which shows you the path of Vesta through Leo around that time. And then finally, on February the 21st, the moon occults some of the stars of the Pleiades cluster. One of the pretty things about the Pleiades cluster, there's a beautiful arc of stars that sort of curves round to the lower left. And the moon at about uh, first quarter, is going to actually occult those stars, which means that the leading edge of the limb is dark. So those stars will just suddenly appear to disappear, if you can say that. Uh, that's about 1850 on the evening 
of February the 21st. That might be quite a nice little thing to look out for. Again, the diagram I've put on the web, in fact, shows the Pleiades with the lovely nebulosity. Uh, you won't see that, of course, because of the light from the moon. But uh, I couldn't get a picture easily which didn't actually show that, but at the same time showed me the bright stars or the stars that the moon's going to occult. Okay, well now, uh, we've been particularly asked by someone who's going to be in Sydney uh, this month if we can talk about the southern sky. He asked if there was anything special he could see, such as a meteor shower. Sadly not. But let me just say some of the things that can be seen down in the southern sky. Uh, there's a region, basically Sagittarius through to Canis Major, that sadly we don't really see very well from our northern climes. Uh, let me just point out one or two of the things along the Milky Way in that region. Well, Sagittarius, the, the main stars make up a teapot. And just above the teapot, there's a lovely region of luminosity called the Lagoon Nebula. You can easily see that with binoculars, maybe even with your eye. If you imagine tea coming out of the spout, they actually cross the position of a very nice open cluster. There are actually two open clusters, although, to be honest, they are just within the borders of the next constellation, which is Scorpius. Uh, Scorpius has that bright star Antares, a reddish star. But as the tail curves round, there's a bit of a kink, and there you see something that looks a little bit like a comet. Um, there's a lovely cluster, something called the Northern Jewel Box, but some nebulosity, and it's a bit of an arc, and it does look a little bit like a comet, so that's nice to see in binoculars too. Uh, we then come to a very large constellation, Centaurus. Um, it has two very bright stars, Alpha Centauri and Beta Centauri. They are pointers because they actually point to the Southern Cross, which is surrounded by Centaurus. Now, Alpha Centauri is, in fact, two bright stars, one slightly bigger than the Sun, one slightly smaller, orbiting each other and they lie at about 4.2 light-years away. So the reason they appear bright is because they're close. We believe there's a third member of that little group, which is Alpha Centauri C, and uh, that, in fact, is normally called Proxima Centauri, because at 4.21 light-years distance, it's, in fact, the nearest star to us. It's a little faint red dwarf star at about 11th magnitude. Now, Beta Centauri doesn't look nearly as bright, but in fact, it's about a 100 times further away than Alpha Centauri, which means it must fundamentally be a very bright star, and it's one of the brightest stars we can actually see with our unaided eye. If you turn sort of up to the left from Beta Centauri, so you sort of curve round a bit, and go about one bright star and the same distance again, you may see a little fuzzy object with binoculars. It's actually about the size of the full moon, and that's Omega Centauri, which is thought, has been thought to be a globular cluster and the largest and brightest we have in our skies, but may well in fact be just the core of a galaxy which has been disrupted by its passage around our own Milky Way. It has got some young stars in it, which globular clusters don't, and it's suspected it has a black hole at its heart. Well, the pointers point towards Crookes, a little constellation surrounded by Centaurus, a little cross of stars. Uh, just below the left-hand cross, star of the cross, is a beautiful little thing called the Jewel Box. It's a lovely cluster. Most of the stars are blue, but there's in fact one red giant in there, which gives a lovely color contrast. And below that, there's a region that looks quite dark. It's called the Cul-de-Sac. 
one of the darkest dark nebulae we see along the Milky Way, a region of dust which is obscuring the light from beyond. Well, beyond Crookes, we have what used to be the constellation Argo Navis. That's been split, and the upper part is Vela, the sails, and the lower part is Carina, the, uh, the keel. And again, there are some nice objects in there. Um, the bright star in Carina is called Canopus, uh, and that's often been used for navigation. I've mentioned before the Eta Carina Nebula, or the Carina Nebula, where there's a star that's likely to explode. That's a very nice bright region. And also not far from there is a little cluster called the Southern Pleiades. It looks like a sort of a slightly smaller version of the Pleiades we see in the northern sky. So it's a lovely region of the sky, and uh, I do sometimes envy those who live in the Southern Hemisphere who have a chance to see it more often than I do. I do travel down south every couple of years or so, and will be there in the summer. So I'm hoping to look forward to seeing these things again. Thank you. Thanks for that, Ian. And now we're going to move on to your feedback. And we're starting off with an erratum that was emailed in by Stuart Ayres. And he says, Hi there, don't know if you do anything with errors by the interviewee, but I realised I said that another example of Sakurai's object was Nova Aquilae 1909. It is in fact Nova Aquilae 1919, which is V605 Aquilae. How's that for professional pride? We do like it when, uh, when our interviewees get back to us. But it's good to know that they've actually listened to the interview. Yes, yes, exactly. Some more people who've been listening to our interviews uh, have been posting over on the forum. So on the forum, we've got Earth Unit, who loves the in-depth answers from Tim. And he says, I mean, where else could I find out that if I was to get thrown off a spaceship, my skin would keep all my gooey inner bits together? So thanks for that, Earth (laughs) Unit. And Rapid Eye agrees with Earth Unit, saying it was a very chilling piece. It's awful, isn't it? That's worse than one of my segues. (laughs) Um, Also on the forum, Joe Didioke is very disappointed in Neil and says that he might have to go and join Slacker Astronomy as he has not been keeping up to date with the Jogcast. And also a new user on the forum is OG, who says that he caught Megan's 365 Days of Astronomy show. Uh, Nicely done. And he has one scheduled for the 15th of the 2nd. Fantastic. Well, we will be listening out for that one. Megan also, just as a by the way, has uh, got a Doctor Who story out about surfing supernovae. I think maybe more important is that Megan has been published in Nature, which, which is, is a, a very big fantastic, deal. Fantastic, fantastic achievement. So well done, Megan. And we look forward to many more. So now on to your Facebook feedback, and Atul Nayak says, I'm a first-timer, and I started with the January Jodcast. Uh, he's listening from Goa, on the west coast of India, and he says, Thanks for a great episode, very lively, informative, and not a boring second. He's also told us about his experience of the annular solar eclipse back in the middle of January, uh, which was witnessed by millions in India and elsewhere. It was a little bit miffed that this wasn't mentioned on the Jodcast, so we apologise for that, and we will try and make sure that all eclipses and other interesting phenomena in the sky will be mentioned wherever in the world. And if you're listening elsewhere in the world, um, it would be great for you to get in touch with us. We always like to know how far away our listeners are. And that includes if you're on the International Space Station downloading us. Send us a tweet. <laughs>
Over on Twitter, thanks to Astronomy2009 for tweeting about the January 2010 show. And that was one where we were discussing the International Year of Astronomy. So that's been retweeted by a few people. Thanks for that. And we're apparently the DLF podcast of the week. Thanks to DLF Resources for tweeting about that. That's the Digital Learning Foundation. Wow. And they also retweeted that I was in Measure for Measure this last <laughs> week. In our email feedback, Joe Stainton said, I just wanted to say that I was introduced to the Jodcast about 12 months ago while studying for my amateur radio license at Huddersfield Technical College. Astronomy, radio astronomy and science in general are of particular interest to radio amateurs the world over. Your show is a fascinating resource. Please keep it up. Jim Omens, uh, we kept him... Uh, from going completely crazy on a packed flight from Guam to Honolulu to Houston to Washington. Wow. Uh, so, yes, he's got another very long trip coming up, and he's hoping that he can download another Jodcast before he goes. So uh, we'll hopefully get this one out for you, um, Jim. And Robert Siddy says that he's an immigration lawyer who loves astronomy and your site, and thank you all very much. And with that, we come to our thanks, because unfortunately this is the end of this edition. So our thanks go to Dr. Miguel Sandander Garcia and Dr. Pablo Rodriguez for the interviews. The interviews were edited together by Jen and Adam Averson, with an honourable mention to Dave Jones for his editing skills. And the show was put together by Sarah Bryan, Adam Averson, Chris Tibbs, Ian MacDonald and Stuart Lowe. It's a very collaborative effort. We're trying to uh, take over from Stuart, so this was a very much a learning experience with this one. Let, let's not say we're trying to take over from Stuart. We're, we're... trying to lighten the load. Yes. Yes, yes, we are. Uh, my thanks must go to Christopher Stadther, Cheryl Cunningham and Lynn Cullen for their parts in our Groundhog Day uh, intro-outro, uh, which was put together by Fiona Thrail. From the two of us sitting here in the Jodcast recording studio here at the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics, Jod on. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. And so there you have it, straight from the Jodcast's mouth. Get your MP3 players primed, because it's going to be a long life for this astronomy podcast, at least in Manxatani Chester. Reporting for Channel 9 News, this is Phil Platers. That was really good, Phil. How did you... Because I've heard it again and again. And when will they change the music? Self-referential intros, I ask you.